listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. I had someone ask recently how I keep track of when I've told stories, when I've repeated myself. And my response was, I repeat myself constantly, apologies and guilty. Um, I, uh, I do that a great deal. Um, <laughs> so at the outset of tonight's talk, I just have to apologize if I've repeated this, if you've heard it before. God bless you if you haven't. Um, you might enjoy it or not, but I was sitting, I remember this one time, uh, listening to, uh, to my teacher take on a person during a, a Q&A. Um, the woman was kind of agitated. And he did a very, very skillful job of kind of just allowing, um, allowing her to kind of, you know, kind of have her experience. And he sat there with this just unbelievable stillness and quietude, you know, and uh, he reminded me of a therapist because he kept going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and then she kind of got to the point of her question. And if I'm remembering this correctly, we, we were we were into a couple of days into a retreat and normally what you want to try to do as a practitioner is really focus as best you can uh, whatever your question is. It's one of the great things about uh, uh, Zen practice is it's all about that question. It's not so much the answer that the teacher gives but that in that meeting of vulnerability of wonder, okay, a fire lights. And assuming that the teacher can bring a bit of presence, or another way of putting it is their own flame, that meets the slight flame with a big flame, and together they create this really neat conflagration. Well, this woman had been, uh, and the rest of us had been sitting for a while, and her question was really all over the place. It was basically a monologue, you know, that just kind of kept going, here's what I know, here's what I know, here's what I know. And... Uh, with the response and kind of gentleness of my teacher's mm-hmms, um, she basically said, well, so how would a Buddha right now, how would a Buddha come right into this room? What would that look like? And uh, he said, well, what would, what would it look like? Or what would the Buddha feel like as she comes into this room? And the lady said, oh, what would it look like first? He said, well, it would look like anybody coming into this room. And I said, okay, no radiant light or anything. He just kind of shook his head and smiled. 
And then she said, well, what would the Buddha feel like walking into this room? And he said, like every step was brand new. I thought this was so beautiful that in essence there's a cultivation of this, what do we call it, uh, beginner's mind, this openness. Shunryu Suzuki, my teacher's teacher, you know, who you may have heard of the book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, this idea of this open mind of not knowing, of not being immersed in certitude. Oliver Wendell Holmes, as I've said, uh, uh, mentioned that certitude is the birth of war. <laughs> Whenever we're absolutely positive about anything, that's the birth of the contraction that actually leads us into this space of opposition. We become opposed when we are certain. Okay. At least that's what I think. I'm not certain of that, but... Uh, <laughs> Old joke. That's a Zen joke. <laughs> Sit down comics use that one. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'll be appearing here all week. <laughs> Tip your monks. <laughs> Try the veal. Oh, wait, where's Zendo? <laughs> yeah. But the, uh, the point I'm awkwardly trying to make here, I guess, is that when we can carry an open wonder as opposed to a certitude into experience. We can walk as a Buddha would walk into the room. We can feel what the Buddha would feel moving into a room. Being open. Being comfortable with not knowing. Being comfortable with wonder that beautiful chaos of wonder. And this rather forces, you know, rather interestingly forces the mystery right down our throats, into our bodies. And it's not easy. Getting comfortable with the mystery is not easy. We're not schooled in that. Which is exactly why meditation, contemplative prayer, uh, you know, certain yogic activities will actually help create a ground where the fruition of this uh, wonder shows up as an awakening, as an awakening to freedom, deep freedom that extends beyond the boundary of separation, the boundary that always, always offers us opposition. We become unopposed. We become deeply inclusive. And the very natural felt sense of this experience is this thing called love. It's not like we, we become more loving. It's that the love that's always there becomes kind of an unfettered expression of being. So we're not really going anywhere. We're not moving towards anything. All things begin moving us. We allow the world to move us. We allow imagery 
to move us. We allow all experience to actually get in there. And what this does is it actually helps eradicate uh, the boundary. At first it becomes kind of semi-permeable. This is oftentimes very awkward, you know. But then what happens is we start getting used to this and stuff starts falling away. We start uh, allowing it all in. Every experience that we might have, no matter how brutal or no matter how glorious, this applies to the good too. It's easiest to teach the bad because we all pretty much are here because something ain't quite right. But even when everything's going perfectly, we're able to kind of let it in and through, as opposed to letting it in and then letting the separate self-sense, this ego, begin to kind of hover over it and say, I got it. Of this, I am certain. Whoops. We recognize it's not something that can be gained, nor is it anything that can be lost. It's what is prior to all. It is isness. <laughs> Language gets so funky here. So if you can, Focus the question. What would you ask the Buddha if she walked into this room? What would you ask her? What would you want to know? How does this Buddha nature, how does this awakened spaciousness show up day to day? How do we cultivate it? How do we uh, uh, nurture and nourish it in our day to day? Um, I think there are all sorts of great ways of talking about this. Uh, one of the the nice things about the Buddhist approach is that I think there's a tremendous amount of flexibility or going back to what I was saying earlier, not nearly as much certitude to get in the way of uh, uncovering a way to express your true nature, to uh, kind of allow for all this stuff to meet the world through us. I would say the first thing um, is beginning to recognize a certain openness to all things as they are. Now, I, I say this a great deal, but uh, when we can begin to accept things as they are, as they hit us, as you know, they, meet, they meet our experience, and then engage the world from a place of deep surrender. We're allowing for this to kind of get nourished, get cultivated.
the soil gets tilled. We meet it with openness, whatever it is. We don't meet it with resistance. If we don't meet it with resistance, anger is an emotion that begins to kind of melt away. Anger always comes from resistance and resistance usually spawns, before anger, it usually spawns fear of loss, okay? And then when there's fear of loss, the fight comes in. That's where anger shows up. And so when we become open to things as they are, anger, anger has less of a valence, if nothing else. It has less of an energetic valence in our experience. So being open, I'd say another quality to kind of cultivate this uh, not knowing, this wonder, what, what it feels like to be a Buddha, is non-expectation. So we don't have, you know, full-on expectation of what's going to happen, or at least if we do, we couch it, or at least inform it with, <laughs> but I could be totally wrong. And there's a certain celebratory nature to that. There's a certain, uh, I mean, if we're open, okay, to things as they are, and then, for instance, we set a goal, but we're not really sure where that goal is going to take us, there's almost like a child, a childish or childlike wonder that begins to meet experience. It's like, well, here's the goal. <laughs> I have no idea what's going to happen, but, you know, this is where I'd like to, here's my intention. Here's where I want to go. I'm going to be open, and I have, you know, no real expectations. Maybe a little bit here, you know, you know but at the same time, I know that, man, What's the saying? Shit happens, you know? That's exactly it. I mean, we start recognizing, hey, man, there's no, <laughs> there are no guarantees of anything. So the non-expectation or the not clinging to expectation begins to provide us with a real, real uh, interesting and almost like a, a felt sense of, of uh, it's a loving freedom. That's what it is. Of course, I'm not sure of that, but uh, I'm not certain. But just kind of this open, open. I mean, if you guys think of it, what is a giggle? What is it? Is it <laughs> you know, we don't know. We don't, we're not sure. We're not, it's, it's non-certitude that I had, uh, I remember vividly, remember the Dick Van Dyke show? You know, and so uh, Dick Van Dyke is explaining to a group of kids how a joke works. And, you know, I, I'll, I'll look to see if I can find it on YouTube, but it was so brilliant, especially since uh, he, I just uh, read this recently. Um, he was fairly intoxicated during most of the taping of his show, if you can believe that. Uh, uh, so for this kind of rich clarity to come through this amazingly talented guy, very f just funny, uh, funny guy talking to these kids about how a joke is a hard right turn. You know, you're going along, going along, going along, boom. And that's exactly what the reason why a joke works, the reason why the giggle happens is because there's this wondrous surprise. It's a gift. And we can allow that 
to enter into our own experience when non-expectation begins to carry us on some level. We let it, literally let it carry us. Let the joke unfold. You don't have to work on a punchline, it'll be there every time. Every time. There's a certain trust that kind of comes into that. And I'll, I'll say this as somebody who used to do this for a living. Uh, when I would get on stage and the, the uh, you know, depending on the crowd, depending on the night, I think I've shared this with you, the, the second show, Friday night, was always the worst show. It was the most devastating. I mean, you, you went out there and most, most of us were, you know, backstage every, every time we were in this space, you know, it's like, okay, let's, let's hope that they're not too tired and not too drunk. And if they're both, I mean, you just watched material just, you know, just crash and burn. Uh, but performing on, on those, those stages, uh, oftentimes what you would then do is just allow for this non-expectation, this openness and this non-expectation and just go out there and let the silliness of the universe just flow. Go four-wheeling, get out there into the crowd. How you doing tonight, you know? And, and not were you trying to necessarily destroy them, you know, you don't, there's no, no need to really be mean, except once in a while when you really want to make sure, boom, you just crossed the line, don't mess with me, I'm not drunk. <laughs> you know? Uh, but this non-expectation, I have no idea how my, my set's going to go. I've been able to dance in that openness in your life is one of those qualities that we kind of, we can... Uh, we can work on. Um, in addition to non-expectation, and this next one is, can be kind of the hardest, it's developing a very full sense of the mind that doesn't know. There isn't one person in this room who hasn't achieved on some pretty profound level. And I say that not just because, I mean, I, I know many of you, but we show up typically uh, to these uh, teachings, uh, whether it's, it's me or any number of other teachers in the, in the Bay Area or in the world, we show up because we feel like we've gotten, we've, we've achieved at some level, but something isn't working. Something, something's amiss. Uh, and one of the toughest things is when each of us has had this, uh, uh, this separate self that has done such a good job getting us to where we are, you know, and now we're being asked by all these books, they all seem to be saying the same thing, you know, it's like, you know, let go, let go, let go. Uh, the ego is, you know, it gets in your way of the letting go. It wants to hang on. Any aspect of you that is bound by some future orientation that creates stress, well, what is that? That's the ego. Anything in us that is bound by pain, darkness, that comes from some past template that ego is hanging on to. If you just get at the ego and you start releasing, you start exposing the ego to the light of awareness. You're golden, you're set. Well, we tend to intellectualize that entire experience, that entire path, 
And the not knowing mind is the mind that is not bound by intellect. It's not bound by knowing stuff. It doesn't deny stuff, but it's not bound by knowing stuff. You guys know the story of the, uh, <laughs> the Zen master. I'm going to butcher this story, but actually, I think that might be the next book, Butchered Zen Stories. <laughs> Misappropriated Quotations and Other Slights, something like that. The uh, Zen master has a, a, uh, uh, this, this uh, uh, Buddhist pandit, this scholar, come in. And uh, scholar basically is really interested in meeting the master. You know, has some questions about enlightenment. <laughs> And the master is utterly nonplussed by the entire experience. And after the uh, scholar comes in, starts just spouting, you know, well, and then the sutra said, you know, it just keeps going on and on and on. The master yawns, picks up his tea, and pours it into a cup and looks at the guy and keeps filling the cup and filling the cup until the cup starts spilling over. And he says, the, the, the scholar says, the, the, the cup, is, it, you're, you're spilling, you're spilling you know, all the tea. And he goes, oh. He says, the cup is full. And he says, then I have nothing to teach you until you empty your cup. Meaning that we can fill our brains with this stuff, okay? We can get really good at quoting scripture, something I suck at, okay? Now, I might be the other extreme, you know, uh, but still, I mean, we can, we can go into literally like the coursework of awakening and get lost. What's key? The mind that doesn't have any expectations. So it's cool to begin filling our minds as long as we can also not have any expectations as to what it's going to bring us. Same thing with meditation. I mean, this is hard because motivation and meditation gets to be something quite, it's, it's a very interesting experiment. Because if there isn't any payoff at all, it's very hard to motivate. Or if the payoff is only slight. Yeah, I get a little high when I do it. You know, I feel a little, a little relaxed. It's kind of, but I'm not getting anywhere. I don't feel enlightened. Enlightenment's impossible in this lifetime anyway. I'm going to wait till the next life. It's like, oh, that's the disaster. Enlightenment is this lifetime. Realizing it is your birthright. And it shows up with openness. It shows up with non-expectation. It shows up with this non-knowing mind. This mind that's like, I don't know. How cool is that? I don't know. Lastly, where I would kind of point, um, part of this practice of stillness um, is to quite literally calm us down. You know, we sit, we sit in a position where we're upright facing our life, okay? And... Uh, we begin to calm down, and in that calming, okay, 
we start recognizing a quiet mind, a soft mind, a quiet body, softening of our body, the clenching and clutching that might be going on intellectually, emotionally, and actually physically begins to kind of uncoil as we practice. And in doing this, we are offered um, a view of the velvet rope into the club. We can, and we're being invited in, but being invited into the, the club of uh, what's always prior. What's always prior to all experience? What is before the action? What is before the impulse to the action? What is before the thought that leads to the impulse prior to the action? I mean, what is prior? We keep kind of unpacking that. That exploration affords tremendous insight. That inquiry offers tremendous, tremendous insight into what we have termed, at least in this work, in this, this room, as the witness, the seer, the observer. No mind. It's the space between thought. All of our unfolding will occur in that spaciousness. That space is prior, is before, always, always before to any event that might come in some fantastical future or in some past event. It's always now. It's always present. It's always here. So recognizing the, the, uh, the potency of presence, <laughs> this always already priorness of being, or as I referred to it earlier, isness. getting comfortable with a mind that doesn't always know. Beginning to open ourselves past expectation and letting wonder fill us at the cellular level. Being open to all of it as it is. If we can kind of bring these four things, this, this openness, this non-expectation, this not knowing mind, and the always prior, if we can bring these things into experience as it is happening day in, day out, just always letting them kind of be there, always paying attention to them, we're in really good shape, even if we're not in really good shape.
We've got a couple minutes for Q&A if anybody has a question they'd care to ask. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, you. <laughs> trying to do what you would suggest. I was going to work on what it was like to see my body for the last time. Yeah. And I was going to work on what I would ask the Buddha. Yeah. You got it? And there was this split focus. Both of which are total ass kickers spiritually. Oh, well, yeah. It was yeah. Like very busy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Really. Ne next week I'll do but, but here's here's what I'm struck what I really want to understand because it was really interesting. When I started with the body scene, um, tears came, and it was a real sense of sadness, but then let's call it gratitude. I mean, really gratitude. This, these souls and hands and everything have really carried me through. So as I'm experiencing that, I'm feeling it in my body. Ah. It's an emotional feeling. Yeah. And, and that sense of gratitude, and, and really there was some wonder. That was nice. I mean, it, after I got past the, just the immediate sadness, there was, it was a nice feeling, okay, a nice feeling state. So there I am in my body, and you talk about being in the body as a key to... Yeah. All right. But there's a part of me that said, but I'm not, I haven't asked the Buddha whatever I need to ask him. So as I go through what I might ask the Buddha, and, you know, various things came to me... Boxers or briefs? <laughs> yeah. No. Right. No, I... Yeah, but still what? Anyway. Right. So, so, I'm, so finally, after I've exhausted my questions for the Buddha, I think, oh, I need to get back to that body. Yeah. And then I realize in doing so that if I come back to that state, at least of gratitude and whatever it was, I'm back in this body and I'm feeling it. But all the time I was thinking about the Buddha and what I'd ask, I really have no clue what my, how my body was. Now, I don't know that I know how my body was with the felt sense of gratitude. Uh -huh. But my question is really, if I realize that I should get out of my mind and more in my body in general, is part of the point about having an attitude of gratitude or whatever, that not just is it a nice feeling state, but it makes you more in your body? It, it, just it forces you. the issue. Okay. That's what I mean by checking in with the body. Next time you're in your head, what would I ask the Buddha? How does that feel? You can always ask yourself that simple question that guides us to presence all the time. How does this feel? How's this feeling? How am I feeling right now? Not what do I think about what, how I'm feeling, which is the, that's the, the ego's... Uh, it, it jumps in. But what is the feeling? You can't answer that question, what is being felt in this moment. You can't answer that question without the witness, without that what is always prior. You know, the fourth thing that I was talking about tonight. You can't. You can do it right now. How are you feeling right now? How does your belly feel right now? Yeah, well, yeah. 
I don't think the Buddha would be too glad to hear you say that, but, uh, you know. It's, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, it's, um, the way you describe that is really, really cool because both, both were kind of designed to stretch that one out. Stretch mind, what would I ask the Buddha? And for the last time, that's body. My sense is many people in this room, probably, I mean, I, I felt it as I, was, as I was saying it, you know? Yeah, and you're just as strong. Puts you right there, puts you right in here, wherever here is, yeah? And what would you ask the Buddha? That puts us into this space of kind of almost, uh, uh, not only deep wonder, but there's, there better be a little fire. You don't, want, you don't want to have the, you know, that one shot and then fuck it up, you know? Here's the Buddha. What's your question? You're really cool, you know? I mean, how awful would that be? Can you be present? Buddha would probably love it, you know? Buddha would... <laughs> Sorry. If you're new tonight, you get your money back, okay? Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's uh, it, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Mia was so busy in her meditation, and I was sitting here concentrating on trying not to Think about yeah, you were thinking about not thinking. <laughs> How'd that work out for you? Didn't you didn't accomplish anything. Excellent! <laughs> wow, it worked! <laughs> you were wasting your time not accomplishing a thing. <laughs> the Listen, keep, keep in mind that, that uh, what um, I mean, the gift of this practice is that it's, it's about non-achievement. <laughs> nice job, Buddha. It's not, about, it's not about achievement. It's also not about the judgments surrounding non-achievement. It's about studying what's underneath those things and what's around them, the space between them. Okay. It's about allowing for that to kind of unfold and inform. And that happens quite naturally when we can bring our awareness into our experience full tilt. And that happens um, when there, a couple things can bring that on that I've, I've discussed before, but just to kind of recap, uh, a couple of them at least. One of them is just straight up discomfort. Pain forces the issue of presence, which is one of the reasons why this posture, uh, this, the one that I'm sitting in right now, which you guys don't have to, but this posture actually kind of forces the issue. It's not designed to be comfortable. It's designed to be stable. And so you bring this stability, okay? And if it's on your chair, you know, you can do the same thing. Most people make... Uh, all sorts of adjust, adjustments so they can get comfortable 
And then when they get really comfortable, what happens, their mind at that point can kind of just go off. But if you're, if you're slightly forced into just the tiniest bit of discomfort, but you're stable, the mind tends to always have that to kind of anchor itself. Does that kind of make sense? Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. Another thing is um, picturing those that you care about, picturing your own body, picturing thoughts, feelings, everything that you love right out in front of you and looking at it as if it was the last time you're ever going to see. That tends to stiffen up our practice. The contemplation of the very real, real thing that is every one of us is going to croak. What's that going to be like, really? What's that like? And then allowing us to really feel that, kind of drop into that, it's powerful. I mean, you can feel it in the room right now. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. Yeah, meditation, if, if meditation just becomes a time for you to think about things, it becomes a rumination as opposed to a meditation. And a rumination tends to just quite literally cycle the very elements of being that get in our way of feeling what's beyond the elements of being. It tends to, you know, kind of keep the circle small, keeps us in this eddied little, little whirlpool. It's familiar, oftentimes really comfortable, but it doesn't allow us into the flow. The, the flow of, the, of the, the, big, the big water. Yeah. Yes. Following with that, getting to that stage, getting past that, those thoughts that are running through your head, rumination, is that a process? to get beyond, to get to the point where you can get to that space. Can I give you some encouragement? Yesterday, you always. <laughs> yesterday was one of the worst meditations I've had in 10 years. Absolutely cracked me up. And, you know, it was so cool. It was such a blessing. Because I can get real cocky about my meditation. You know? And so then to be in this place where the thoughts were just going, you know, and, and what was really funny is that they were repetitive. And I kept thinking to myself, well, it's, you know, this will settle down. I've been through this before. Goddamn decade or two ago, but yeah, I've been through this before, you know, right? So all this judgment's coming, all this negativity's coming up, and then I'd watch that. It's like, whoa, you know? And then the timer goes off, and I'm like, <laughs> have I lost it? Mm -hmm. You know? Nothing is gained. We get better at it. And then we get reminded of how we're not ever finished with this work. You know? You can uncover uh, reactions that people, enlightened beings, you know, have thrown at the world that are really not very enlightened, right? So while on the one hand you could say we get better at playing the music, every once in a while we still have to look at the, the spots on the sheet. 
You know, every once in a while it's good to kind of come back to a piece, put it right in front of us and practice through it again. But it's always practice. It's always practice. Sometimes there are performances and we can really let this whole effulgence of being out through, through our fingertips, so to speak. Sometimes. Sometimes we do it well. Sometimes we just, we're, we're, we're trashed, you know. But then kind of taking this back to what uh, Sheila was asking before, I mean, can we make sure that whatever position we're in, it's a position of awareness, not so much a position of comfort? Can we make sure that there's, you know, that we're really, really clear, that there's a deep sobriety, if you will, a deep sobriety to how it is that we're meeting our experience, you know? Uh, can we recognize that this is fleeting? There's not a lot of time. Make it count. Every cookie is the last cookie in the cookie jar, you know? And those always taste really good, you know? And this can tend to kind of inspire. We can tend to look at a meditation. We can tend to look at the, especially the plateaus that seem like, man, is this ever going to end? You know, I've been years in this just kind of, eh. And then something usually clicks. Maybe it's a retreat that helps facilitate it. Maybe it's a, a teaching. Maybe it's a book. Maybe it's, you know, whatever. But we take our practice to the next level. Or better said, the practice takes us to the next level. And where is that next level? That next level is actually just, it's outward. It's like we're, f Samuel Bonder, I love how he, he and his wife call it falling awake. As opposed to falling asleep. It's just kind of this, this opening, you know? And then what happens? This whole idea of accepting things as, as they are helps to cultivate and nourish it. This idea of not being bound by expectation or the thinking mind, by allowing this always already priorness through. And what do we become? We become somebody who walks into the room utterly and completely surprised at each step. Everything's new, everything's fresh. And that's called Buddha. Buddha. Thank you, Buddhas, for coming tonight. And Christs. And everybody in between. <laughs>